This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hershan Hart, and I'm here with Katherine McLaughlin. Hello. When the Boston Globe decided to establish a New Hampshire bureau, they needed reporters with local cred, and they found one in Amanda Gokey, a name local readers will recognize from her stint with the New Hampshire Bulletin. Since February, Amanda has written about politics, breaking news, health, education, and climate, among other topics. To see what she's been up to, visit bostonglobe.com nh. Thank you for joining us, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with both of you about my work. Amanda, could you tell us a bit about how you first became interested in journalism and how you made your way into the profession? Yeah, absolutely. This is such a great question. And for me, it's definitely been a little bit of a circuitous path to journalism. I studied literature and languages. So I actually did like a literature degree in French and Spanish. I spent some time after graduation in Mexico City, and I was doing sort of a lot of jobs that were kind of adjacent to writing and what led me to journalism, but not really related at all. So I was doing work as a copy editor. I was doing some translating work from Spanish to English and with French as well, which was another language that I had studied. I was interviewing artists for book projects. And so I was getting to do a lot of different sort of freelance work that was interesting to me, but it did really help me realize as that decade was going on that what I wanted to be focused on was writing and doing my own writing, especially some of the work that I was doing, editing books and those sorts of projects. So that led me to apply to grad school, um, which is what brought me to New Hampshire. And I was doing a, a sort of program where I could focus on creative writing. And I was able to take a sort of wide array of classes, everything from working on a novella to short stories. Um, the program offered poetry classes. And then I had a sort of summer class where it was focused on literary journalism. And we had an assignment to go out and report a 3000 word story that summer. And it was just the best class. I had such a good time. And I sort of had that light bulb moment where I realized this is a career path that would allow me to sort of combine my research interests and my interests in talking to people and telling very human stories with the structure that comes with having a newsroom and having colleagues who are focused on writing and having that sort of community around the work, which after spending some time doing those freelance projects, I realized was so important. Just the regularity of having deadlines and having that accountability and a community of people who are also interested in stories, interested in really good writing and interested in reporting. So that's kind of how I came to, to journalism originally. And could you talk a bit about your time at VT Digger and at the Bulletin, these sort of emerging nonprofit outlets? Yeah. So from the get-go, VT Digger was just, I was so lucky to get to have my start there. It was a really exciting place to begin my career in journalism. It was sort of this vibrant and growing place. There was a ton of young journalists there. When I started, it was, it either was already or quickly became the largest newsroom. They had a partnership that they were doing with the other public media, the public TV station, PBS there. And so it just had this feeling of real energy of, you know, there was such a priority on going after the biggest, the most important stories, trying to cover everything, trying to do it all, really trying to establish itself as that sort of paper of record for the state of Vermont, which is where I, you know, mostly grew up. So it was so exciting to be doing that in my home state and just seeing other young journalists 
covering crazy stories. I remember there was one with a militia in southern Vermont that we that VT Digger published while I was there. And it, it was just so exciting to see how they were peeling back the layers of the story and um, being able to tell stories that other papers in the state weren't weren't telling that the traditional outlets weren't weren't telling and the founder of VT Digger had actually was someone who had spent a lot of her career in sort of the more traditional newspaper space she was an editor of the Rutland Herald and then had just sort of seen how those outlets were really waning they were losing staff they weren't able to pay people the way they once had and so as that model was kind of declining she saw this need and real opening to do something new, which was following the nonprofit model for funding, which has worked really well for VT Digger and being a native online news source. So there was no overhead with having a print paper. They were just sort of able to jump in and really build out their website and have all of the focus beyond that. Thinking about digital first, there was a really great editor whose focus was doing audio pieces there. And and so I got to interview with him and just seeing how we went from having a story that I had reported originally for print or for online print, at least, and transforming that into a, into a digital digital piece. And then obviously the New Hampshire bulletins are really where I, you know, both of these places where I started my career were following this similar model of nonprofit news, news that's just free for people to consume. The bulletin was, um, when I started there, was really cool because in addition to sort of all of the things that were happening at VT Digger, they have this model where they're really trying to fill, help other papers also fill those gaps. And so allowing other newspapers to republish their stuff for free. And that was great for me because I felt like, okay, if I really, you know, write this great story, it can reach a massive audience, not only the people that are tuning into the bulletin and want to see, you know, what's the latest thing in our newsletter, what's the latest thing on the website, but they can actually just get it if they're a subscriber to the Laconia Daily Sun or any of the other sort of uh, regional papers and local papers around the state. And so I think moving to the bulletin, it was obviously a new state for me. I was kind of getting to know New Hampshire and sussing out all the differences. And, you know, there's a lot of similarities as well, even though you might not think about those at first thought between Vermont and New Hampshire. And just really seeing like the reception to a new outlet and that the people were excited about having us and they were eager for new and different kinds of storytelling um, and getting an opportunity to really bring that to to the state and, and also just get a sense of, you know, what is the, the media landscape and how does this new nonprofit kind of fit into what's already so well established in the state. And and I think that's a that was a great opportunity to think through, you know, like Here's what sort of our, our press corps is already doing really well. Here's the areas that we have really well covered. How can I bring something and how can we as the bulletin in the nonprofit news space, like what can we do differently? What, what can we do that's additive as in and not approaching it in such a competitive, like elbows out kind of way of like, we have to, you know, always be the first to X, Y, and Z story, which, you know, certainly can have its, its benefits in making people, I think, sharper. But it was thinking through like, what's the story that we are positioned to tell that other people might not necessarily necessarily have the time or the resources to, to do. Absolutely. It's really interesting that, as you mentioned, you started your career with these vibrant online news sources. And then now with The Globe, you've switched to the largest legacy outlet in the region. What has that change been like for you? How has it 
impacted the way you approach reporting? Yeah, for sure. It has been a a huge transition. It's really interesting because I think starting my career with those outlets, like it it was a narrative that certainly makes a lot of sense. Like I was a younger career journalist, it's kind of this emerging model. And I'm so grateful for the opportunities and the platforms that those different outlets provided me. And then, you know, it's exciting, of course, to be approached by an outlet like The Globe that does have sort of a more established presence in the region. It has been the New Hampshire Bureau obviously is new, but you know, the globe has been here all along and covering the state of New Hampshire. In terms of like how I think about the work and how that's changed, I think that is a really good question. I feel like with the nonprofit model, there was a luxury of, there was really no overarching from leadership. There was no pressure about like the stories that we were writing how they would land with readers. I think it was much more coming from a place of like, you know, we have a duty and we have an obligation to like cover the inner workings of the state house and what's going on here. I think all reporters feel that to an extent. And I definitely think that in the time that I've been at the Globe, there's a lot more strategy and thinking about connecting with readers in a way that I really appreciate, but it has been a, it has been a change in thinking about you know, there's a team that's dedicated to doing social media, right? Like that wasn't something that when you're like going about your day-to-day reporting that you necessarily feel like, oh, I want to go and make like a beautiful Instagram post to to showcase the work that I've done. It's kind of like you've written the story, you've gotten out there, maybe you send off a quick tweet. But like the fact that we do have a team that's thinking about that really carefully and it's like, Right. It's 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 a privilege to have to work in that kind of an organization because it is important to meet readers where they're at. And if it's going to be on social media, which I'm sure a lot of younger people are consuming their news there, it's like it's wonderful that we, we are able to offer that and get that to people. It's also just been a shift from the bulletin specifically in that the bulletin had a really specific sort of niche focus of the state house. So it was always kind of thinking like, how do I take something that's happening at the state house, connect that to somebody in a community, a real human, show how that's sort of like impacting their lives. And now I feel like I have kind of wide open blank slate where I'm looking at, you know, the whole state, there's kind of like anything can be on the table if you can make a compelling case for it. So really thinking through like, you know, if I, as a reporter for the Boston Globe, I'm going to be choosing this story of all stories in the state to cover, like, why, why am I doing that? You know, what is the sort of reasoning for choosing one thing over the other? And it is a responsibility, I think, because, you know, it is sort of launching things, it has the potential to launch things to a different level because like some national news outlets are going to be looking to what the globe's covering in a way that they might not be sort of as with as fine of a tooth comb pouring over all of the local stories that are coming out of a state. So I do think it's something that I keep in the back of my mind and not to do it from a place of like, oh gosh, what's going to happen if this story goes viral or like explodes in a certain way that like it's out of your control, but more from a sense of, wanting to feel really sure about like, here's why, here's my reasoning. And I've talked it through with the editor. And this is why we think like, this is really a story that merits the time and the attention. Similarly, you know, you've got a small team covering the whole state at the Globe. How do you really make those decisions about what to cover and what not to cover? I mean, I think one of the things that I felt lucky about since the beginning is our editor has said, you know, this is really a reporter driven sort of 
project and endeavor from the beginning, which I think is just, it's, it is a luxury to have that sort of support from, from your editor. And she's obviously coming in with a lot of experience and that good judgment and can ask those sort of probing questions of us when that's, when that's needed. But I think that's been clear from the beginning. I work with another colleague, Stephen Porter and I, and I think we do have sort of that wonderful gift of being able to explore the stories that we're interested in, right? So, and, and I've heard editors say this before, and I, I think it tends to be true is when you're in a reporting situation where you're allowed to kind of like pursue your interests and do the things that you're curious about, it's kind of like honing that, that instinct that you have as a reporter for like, I think there is really something meaningful or interesting here. Or like, this is a story that, you know, deserves to be told in the state. That being said, we're, as we're talking now, you know, we're three months into this. So I think it's also very much like an evolution and something that's in, it, it's in process and we're, we're still figuring out where we can have the most impact and, and just weighing those different things. I mean, there's so many ways of deciding what, what to cover in a, in a particular day, what rises to the top. So, so as I was saying, like, I think some's interest, some is that question of impact. What are the stories that we're in a position or maybe have the resources to, to dive deeper into that is not necessarily getting covered in other places? Trying to be have as good of a sense as we can and be smart about like, where are the gaps in the media landscape? Not wanting to duplicate, you know, if there's already going to be three reporters who are going to the executive council and they're going to walk away with, you know, a similar similar sorts of coverage what's a way that we can approach that differently or do something that puts that news into context. So just kind of trying to keep an eye out for those sorts of opportunities as, as they arise. You mentioned your editor who I believe also oversees the Globes Rhode Island desk. What is it like establishing a new desk of such a established paper and what are the challenges there? Yeah, that's such a good question. It is kind of crazy. I mean, it's been, it's been wonderful. Um, I think, so our editor is great. Her name's Lila Alphonse. And you're right, she does cut she does Rhode Island as well. So we have certainly like looked to Rhode Island as a model. That being said, like they have seven reporters there and we have two. So she's kind of always trying to like make the case like, look, we're not gonna do the exact same thing as what's going on in Rhode Island. They, you know, there was a, a legacy paper there that has really declined in recent years. And so they're kind of scooping up a lot of that territory and it's not the same situation in in New Hampshire. So yeah, I think that that being said, I don't know, I kind of lost my train of thought. <laughs> what was the question again? What are some of the challenges of establishing a new desk of a paper with an established name? Okay, so yeah, like I, I would say, you know, one of the things Lila has has sort of said to us early on was we're building the airplane as we're flying it. So we're kind of mm -hmm. jumping in and figuring out as we go, like what works. And I think that has the benefit of like, you can be very responsive to people. We're putting out this daily newsletter. And so we're hearing from people every day, sort of what they like, what they don't like, um, what's working for readers. And I think having that sort of feedback, you do have that like startup mentality where we have a ton of agency in terms of being able to say like, we'll try this thing a couple days this week and see how it lands. Like, does that work for readers? What kind of response are we getting on it? And then we can sort of adjust as we go. And I feel like that's been my experience, which, you know, it can be, it can be a lot to feel like you're starting something from scratch, but you do have that bl blank slate that you're working from. 
we've talked a little bit about your transition from working for a nonprofit paper to a more traditional paper. What has that transition been like in terms of your sources? Have you found that a lot of them have followed you or have your interactions with them been different? Yeah, that's an awesome question. It has definitely changed. And I think maybe the reason it's changed is not so much because of going from a nonprofit to a for-profit. It's more been the way at the bulletin, I was focused on a couple of beats. Primarily, I was covering energy and environment. I did some voting rights stuff. I was always really interested in sort of like minority communities and how the state is diversifying. So I had sources, I would say, kind of broadly in those three areas. And a lot of the sources were kind of like closely clustered around state house issues. And now I found like this has been a great opportunity for source building and talking to people like, you know, I think particularly we're interested in folks in the southern tier just because there is sort of an affinity with Massachusetts. It's geographically much closer and those communities do have some sort of like overlapping interests. They're also like where people are probably globe subscribers are located right now. So connecting with different local leaders in the southern part of the state, which I wasn't necessarily focusing on in my in my last role. It's I think I'm always happy to have the opportunity to talk to new people. One of the challenges I would say in particularly energy reporting is that so many of the people working in that space and so subsequently so many of my sources were white and male. And it's something I'm really like acutely aware of is the diversity of my sourcing. And so I think this is a this is a moment where I'm also thinking through that as I'm kind of like making new relationships and and just building, I would say that's been the biggest change is is looking to expand the sort of range of people that I'm talking to. And just like any opportunity to kind of like dive into new local communities that I haven't necessarily interacted with before, I think is, is, is an exciting one. You mentioned the relationship between New Hampshire and its proximity to Massachusetts. I'm wondering, do you think of your readers as being from New Hampshire or sort of see your yourself as reporting on New Hampshire for the Globe's existing audience? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both because like recognizing that the Globe does have audience already in New Hampshire and it's like a surprisingly high number. I don't have that number mm. off the top of my head, but it when I heard it, I was like, wow, it's really already a lot of people. So I think there's recognition. I personally, like I am really interested in reporting on New Hampshire for New Hampshire. And so I think in the conversations and to the extent that that's something I have a say in, like it's, it's what I'm pushing for, because I think people here really do bristle when it's that sort of like feeling of somebody's parachuting in and they're saying like, oh, look how quaint this town is and look how cute things are here. I don't think people necessarily like that. That being said, like, I think there are a lot of New Hampshire stories that are of a broader regional interest because like what's happening in New Hampshire is, is really fascinating and it is a big player in the region and there's news being made here all the time that's relevant to people in Massachusetts. So it's finding that right way of covering where it, covering it. And yeah, definitely thinking through, I think first it's, this is coverage for, for New Hampshire. I'd like to ask you about a specific story you published recently, working to fill the gaps in transgender healthcare. And then there was, as you mentioned, a newsletter version accompanying it called With Trans Healthcare, There Are Not Two Sides to the Story. Could you tell us how the decision was made to cover this issue from that angle? And what did you learn? Yeah, absolutely. So this was something where I think 
you know, everybody in our little New Hampshire bureau has been a really pretty aware and following what's happening in the state house. And this was sort of an opportunity to take a step back from that and say, like, right, we know that this has become this kind of hot button, super politicized issue right now. What are folks who are actually like providing this care to people on the ground? What do they have to say about it? How, what is their experience of this particular moment? How is it impacting their work. So that was for me the starting point. And also just recognizing like, hey, we have this one clinic in the state that provides this kind of care for kids. I was just kind of coming at it from a place of personal curiosity about what does that work look like? What are they hearing from parents? What are they hearing from patients? And so we basically sat down with the two of the providers at the clinic to talk through their work, what it looks like, um, the kind of care that they're providing, what their conversations with families are like, and also ask them those questions about, you know, one of the things that they sort of very, very early on in our interaction was clear was that the, these two providers were cautious and they were hesitant about talking to reporters. So that to me is already interesting. You know, they were raising issues with coverage that they've seen in other sort of mainstream outlets. And I wanted to hear more from them about what they found so troubling about that coverage just to better understand it. So that sort of gets to, to your point about the quote where they were saying there aren't two sides to this coverage. And I think that's a sort of critique of the way, you know, media has traditionally covered a lot of stories with the sort of both sides approach of, you know, here are doctors who are in favor of trans healthcare, and here are doctors who are opposed to trans healthcare. And what the providers I talked to said was that doesn't really work here because we're talking about evidence-based science, it's best practice medicine. And so the media coverage should reflect that and not try to find, you know, that one dissenting voice to quote unquote balance out a story. And I noticed that that story, the finished piece came out in a question and answer format. Did you go into it knowing that's how you wanted to present it? Or did that decision come after your interview? That was something that we had talked about in sort of the early stages when I pitched the story initially. And I think it was something that I was also able to go to the providers. And I think it did help them to feel more comfortable in talking with me because I said, look, you know, we're planning to do it as a Q&A. I like that format when when I think it can be something that's easily digestible for a reader. I think it's also a nice way to highlight or showcase somebody who's an expert in, in an area where it's it's really more about what they have to say on a certain topic. And it's less about me kind of going in and ex like putting a narrative arc on a story from the beginning. I don't think it was ever intended to be that sort of a, a story. And so... Yeah, I think I think it did help them to feel more comfortable sort of knowing that their voices would be central to the story. They were wondering, you know, they asked me, like, we don't know who what kind of other context you're going to pull in here or what other voices you might juxtapose to ours. And they were very sensitive to to that, given sort of what I've already touched on with the other media coverage and how they had seen other outlets portraying the issue. So I do think it was helpful for that. And I did feel like I was lucky in that they were interviews where both of the people in that interview had really interesting and compelling things to say. They were really well-spoken. I thought they were both really candid in talking to me about parts of this issue that I think are challenging when it came to how the advocacy work that they're doing at the state house is pulling them away from the clinic. Like that was really interesting to me. I hadn't necessarily 
thought about it specifically in those terms, but the um, pediatric endocrinologist, Dr. Francis Lim Liberty was saying, you know, like, it's really a bummer to me that I have to go to the state house. I have to give up on this time that I would otherwise have at my clinic with my patients doing work that I, you know, can see the benefit to. I can see how it's like saving these young people's lives. And you're telling me now I have to go and do something that I haven't received the training for this in medical school. I'm having to, you know, defend the fact that these people's lives are are worthwhile to 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 folks who don't have any medical background and being told that your work is is wrong. So I was glad for the Q&A format, I felt like it did allow me to put their voices front and center and, and do justice to kind of their messages. This is a really dynamic time to be working in journalism. As we mentioned, there are these up and coming online outlets, and that's an emerging format. And then you have legacy and established outlets trying to figure out how to stay agile in a changing market. And then additionally, as you mentioned, some of those gaps as older outlets or local outlets kind of recede. What's your outlook on the future of journalism in New Hampshire? How do you see it changing? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I feel like it's one that I would come to with like a fair amount of humility. I still, I still do feel like somewhat of a newcomer to the state. I still feel like I'm learning all the time about about that landscape as it's evolving and shifting. You know, I've been a part of these kind of two new startup, not like first with the nonprofit version at the Bulletin and now with the Globe sort of really dedicating more time, resources and people here. So I don't really feel like I have a great forward looking sense. I, I think what I would say is like in the from most basic level, I feel really optimistic about the future of journalism in New Hampshire. I think people here really value it. I think people are incredible. Like I'm always surprised by how grateful people are for the work that we do, which I don't know if that's the case everywhere, but I, I feel lucky to work in a state where where that's true, where each time I've been a part of something new, people have said, oh, wow, that's awesome. And even other outlets too. Like, I think you could go to places where people are like grumbling and, and, and maybe they are behind, behind <laughs> what I know about. But like, seriously, like, I think the overall sense that I've gotten is people are, are really happy to have more coverage. There is my sense from talking with people who've been around for longer is like there is a little bit of a sense of we're in a sort of harder, more difficult moment compared to the strength of papers, you know, people kind of harken back to, I think, a golden day of journalism where there were more resources, there was more money. I think we're in a transition moment. Like I think people, outlets, journalists, editors, like I think people are trying to figure out that very question of what the future looks like. Um, and I think hopefully we're starting to figure out what those what those models are and that that will lead to more and better journalism in the future and, and just being able to continue to tell these wonderful stories that are happening all around the state. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about your sort of meandering path that brought you to your job now. What advice would you give to someone interested in starting their career in journalism? I think the best advice I could give to someone who is interested in starting a career in journalism is to follow your curiosity, to go after the stories that you think are most interesting and the things that you see happening in your community that other people are not reporting on or they're ignoring. The second piece of advice is to be courageous and to be fearless to pick up the phone or to just stop somebody if you see them on the street or at a meeting and say, 
I'm really interested in learning more about this. Something that was challenging for me when I was getting started and I was working at, on my, my feature story for this class was there's a little bit of that awkwardness around, oh, I'm not saying like I'm calling from the Boston Globe. I'm not saying I'm calling from this, you know, known entity, but you can't underestimate people's generosity. That's the thing that's so beautiful and so rewarding about this career is like I spend all my days calling people up and hoping that they'll be willing to spend five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes talking to me. And they consistently are. And that, you know, yes, I do. I'm now lucky enough to have this business card that says I work for the Boston Globe and that undeniably opens doors. But even when I was first getting started, it is really enough to say, I am so-and-so, introduce yourself. Let them know you're trying to write a story. It's important to be upfront about that, obviously, when you're getting started. You want to let people know that it's you're not just talking to them privately. There's a public component to this. Just be, be frank, be personal. But people will take the time. I think you'll be constantly blown away by how willing people are to share their stories with you. It's the most rewarding part of this job. And I think that if you can get yourself over that sort of initial fear about like, oh man, it is scary to talk to somebody who I don't know. It's scary to approach a stranger, but you know, that's where, that's where really these interesting stories lie and it's pretty addicting once you start. So just give it a shot. Very good advice. Um, Amanda, are you working on anything right now that you'd like to preview for our listeners? Sure. Yes. Thank you for the question. I would love to. I'm I'm working on a story I'm really excited about. I'm uh, spending a little bit of time on this one. Another one of these Q&A stories that I did was about long COVID. And after I wrote that, I had a disability activist reach out to me. Her name is Leah Stagnone, and she is living with ME-CFS. It's basically the shorthand version of that is chronic fatigue syndrome. So she got bit by a tick back in 2016. She got sick from it, um, even though she sought care. And now she has chronic fatigue syndrome. And it's been really shocking to me to, to learn about this disease. You know, Leah was somebody who was very active, who, you know, loved the outdoors, loved to hike. And, you know, now she's in a situation where if she walks too much, it can cause a flare and she can be bed bound. And there's a lot of people in our state pre-pandemic, the numbers have gone up, but she was telling me that pre-pandemic, there's around 10,000 people in our state. And I was looking at the long COVID numbers recently, and it's something around 70 thousand folks. So these two communities of people are really coming together and advocating because there's not a lot of awareness. Only something like 6% of doctors in medical school are taught about these conditions. It's also 75% of people who are diagnosed are women. So it really follows in this sort of medical traditional tradition and unfortunate tradition of medical misogyny of ignoring women's pain and sort of saying like, oh, sorry, like maybe it's depression or maybe it's psychological and being really dismissive. So I'm, I'm still working on the reporting of this one, but just talking to people who are dealing with this disease, who are living with it day in, day out, they have such compelling stories about what they've lost, what they've had to give up along the way. You know, if you're somebody who's active, you love being outside and you can't do that anymore. That's a really hard sort of loss to handle. But more than that, I think the, there are these really compelling stories of individuals. But, you know, what Leah was saying to me is like, it's a systemic problem. It's a systemic problem that there hasn't been the money for research into this, that, that, that there hasn't been awareness that it's not taught in medical school. And so I'm excited to be to be working on that and hopefully we'll have it out before too, too long. Absolutely. I meant you mentioned how rewarding it is to have those conversations with people in this work. I imagine having one of your stories leading someone to reach out to you and trust them, trust you with their story must be really encouraging. 
Yeah, I think it, it feels great to know that we're not just sitting here kind of putting words out into the world that they're being read and that it matters to people and that we're in communication and, and, in, and in conversation with the people that we're ultimately like writing for. So yeah, I would, I agree. That is such a, it's a really rewarding thing. And it's fun because it like uncovers things that I would have never thought on my own to look into this. And so it's like all of us as reporters, like we have blind spots and we're lucky enough to be in a career where we're kind of constantly learning and getting to like probe those blind spots and see what lies beyond them. Anything else that we haven't talked about today that you want to discuss? I think we've covered so much ground. I'm so grateful for both of you for what you're doing. This has been a really fun and interesting conversation. It was in preparation. I was like listening to some of your other episodes and it's so fun. Of course, I gravitated towards the names that I know, but I think it's really encouraging to think about all these great voices that we do have in the journalism scene in New Hampshire. I'm really I feel really lucky that this is where my career has taken me and it was great to meet both of you today. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for joining us. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlin Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.